In the first few chapters of the book of Acts, we see a depiction of the disciples of Jesus acting more courageously and responsibly than they ever had before. They did it because, as Jesus put it, they had been endowed with power from on high. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This is a podcast where we discuss the weekly Come Follow Me lessons in the Sunday School Manual for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and if you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a review either on Facebook, iTunes, or on SoundCloud. Your, your five-star reviews help us to find more listeners. Also, if you should like to ask a question or com- make a comment, email the show at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Com. This week's question comes from Charlie. She first makes a comment. She is responding to a message that I, I taught a couple of weeks ago about all the people who served Christ. And she mentioned there are a lot of people who are nameless in the Gospels that served Christ, such as the owner of the stable where he was born and those who served him in various homes for dinner, the woman at the well, the person who provided the room for the Last Supper, and the one who provided the ass for his triumphal entry. So these are the nameless people who served Christ. And what I mentioned was that the most prominent people, at least in the Gospel of Luke, to, who served Christ were the women that surrounded him after his burial. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, she, she just goes into greater detail to all the people that, that served Christ throughout his life, and uh, that's a much appreciated lesson. Now she she asks why she thought that crucifixion was reserved for those who were fighting against Rome. Why would thieves be crucified next to Christ? This is a great question, and it's not exactly clear. They're called thieves. However, uh, crucifixion is uh, an execution for sedition against Rome. So though they may have been thieves, the implication is that they had committed some offense where they had made, perhaps they had been Jews stealing from Romans, and in this way they're undermining Roman rule. That seems like the likely implication. So though they were called thieves, they, they had stolen from the wrong people, or there was more to it than just thievery. Thank you, for, thank you for your question, Charlie. All right, so this week we're discussing the Acts 1 through 5, first five ch- chapters of Acts. It is called, Ye Shall Be Witnesses Unto Me. And the most notable event is the, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We'll get to that in just a, just a few minutes. So we're going to back up just a little bit. Now remember, the book of Acts was written by Luke. And Luke describes at the beginning of the gospel according to Luke, he describes his methods for writing the, the gospel and presumably the book of Acts as well. He said, I traveled around all these places, and I asked the eyewitnesses to give me an account of everything they remembered of Jesus and the, and the servants of the word. So if you remember that, we discussed that a little bit at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. So he wrote this gospel almost like a, a letter to someone called Theophilus, and that's a Greek word. If you think of the word audiophile or cinemaphile, it's somebody who loves music or movies. The word philo is, is a lover of. And Theo, as in theology, is God. So Theophilus is someone who loves God. And the question has often been asked, is this the actual name of a person, or is it a general letter addressed to anyone who loves God? Uh, it, or Theophilus could be a nickname that Luke had for somebody who's his patron, who's funding his research. It, the, it, it's a, a very interesting question, one worth getting deeper into, we just don't have the time. But that's, that's what Theophilus is when, when you see that there. It's, it's not exactly known who that is. But the, the addressee of Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts is this person or this idea of Theophilus, the lover of God. So at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, now we just had a special episode on Luke 24, and 
Um, but we didn't talk about this particular verse. The first thing I want to do is I want to bring up a little discrepancy that creeps in, and it, it could lead to a question. I didn't actually receive this question from a listener, but I, I might as well have because it's a common one. And that is in the book of Matthew, in the 28th chapter of Matthew, and in some accounts of the, the Last Supper, Jesus says, after I die, go look for me in Galilee. And then in the 28th chapter of Matthew, the the disciples were reminded three times, go into Galilee where he to- as he told you before, and he will meet you there. And then here in the, in the 24th chapter of Luke, Jesus tells the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem. So the question is, this is almost a question about timeline, because it, Luke makes it clear in chapter 1 of Acts that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. We'll talk about the ascension in just a minute. It's the first event of the book of Acts. Um, but in Luke 24, 49, Jesus says these words. He's still in the room with the disciples where he's appealed to, he's appeared to them in this closed room and let them look at the marks on his hands and feet and then eaten with them. And he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, until you be endued, which means endowed, with power from on high. So he's he's promising as he as he has many times. I will send you a comforter. Uh, he has he is repeating his promise of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't say exactly when. And Luke gives a little foreshadowing, or perhaps um, a second account of the of the ascension, he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So this is almost like a restating of what comes in just a few minutes in the first chapter of Acts. He's talking about the ascension. And the Mount of Olives, in the book of Acts, he describes it as happening on Olivet, or the Mount, which is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. Bethany is just a little bit farther. So somewhere in that area is where Jesus ascended into heaven, it seems to me to be another, just another account of the ascension, and then Luke repeats that. In case you didn't read the gospel, or in case it's been a while since you read his gospel, he repeats it in the book of Acts. Um, that's my personal take. But the question still remains, Jesus seems to be telling the disciples not to go to Galilee, and then in Matthew, he's telling them to go to Galilee. How do we reconcile this? Uh, the the answer is, first of all, when he says, and he led them out as far as to Bethany, we're still in Luke 24, now verse 50, and he led them out, this word and in Greek is actually a, a word meaning later, an indeterminate amount of time later. So the there is no other answer other than to say the disciples did both. It's about a three days journey from Jerusalem to Galilee. So we have accounts of the uh, disciples being together the day after the Easter Sunday and then the week after when Thomas was then with them and Jesus appeared to them. And then we have John's account of Jesus in Galilee alongside the Sea of Galilee where they were fishing. And we also have other accounts of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus appeared to them there. So, what, what obviously has happened is the disciples were a short time in Jerusalem, and then they remembered that they'd been commanded to go into Galilee. Perhaps Jesus appeared to them again and, and said, go, now go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. Or perhaps he stopped appearing, and then they had to pray about it, and they were like, oh, you know what? He did say uh, it, he would come see us in Galilee. In any case, it's the only way to reconcile these is to assume that they spent a certain amount of time in Jerusalem journeyed to the Galilee area, had their visions of, and visitations of Jesus there, um, and close to that is the Mount of Tr- Transfiguration, and then returned to Jerusalem within 40 days. Not impossible, not even particularly difficult. In fact, Jesus himself had done this on more than one occasion because the Feast of Pentecosts and the Feast of Passover are 49, 50 days apart. And so... This was a, a common thing for a Jew to do, somebody who was super observant and would keep both of those feasts. Although I don't imagine every Jew kept every feast, but uh, more probably kept the Passover than kept Pentecost. We'll discuss what the Feast of Pentecost means, but it was 50 days after Passover. 
And then, uh, so this, this would have been a common occurrence to walk home and then walk back to Jerusalem. And this is obviously what has happened. And so there are people who use this seeming contradiction as proof that the Bible isn't true. Obviously, look at these different disciples. They can't even get their story straight, these evangelists writing the different gospels. Um, one of them says that Jesus wanted the disciples to stay in Jerusalem. The other said, go to Galilee. That's the explanation, and it's not even particularly difficult. It's not that hard to see how the disciples could do both. They could easily have made that trip, and it wouldn't have even been out of the ordinary for them. So let's now return to Jesus' words, until you be endowed with power from on high. Remember now, this is the same phrase that Joseph Smith used to describe the need that the early saints had to go through the temple before they would be confirmed to cross the plains in their confirmed in the coming trials that awaited them. And in this case, it was an ordinance of endowment in the temple that they needed. They would be given the courage and the fortitude to make it through what was coming. And and Joseph Smith saw the necessity for that ordinance in their lives. And Jesus is, and he is making explicit reference to these words of Jesus when Jesus says, wait here until you are endowed with power from on high. So tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, uh, it, it's, it occurs in Luke 24, 49, and now we'll go to uh, Acts chapter 1. We're back in Acts chapter 1. And this is where we get the idea of the fact that Christ was 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. Because in verse 3, Luke says it explicitly. He was seen of the disciples 40 days. And then in verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And this seems to me to be a, uh, a direction to them of where they should establish the church. It's not that you can't leave Jerusalem for a trip, right? It's not that you can't, uh, you can't ever set foot outside of Jerusalem. It, it, he's telling them that you shouldn't leave Jerusalem permanently because this is where the church needs to be centered. This is where the Jews are who need to hear this message. And then you go from the Jews to the Gentiles. So he's giving them directions on where the headquarters is. And then uh, he says, uh, in verse 5, Jesus says, You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So 40 days uh, is how long Jesus spent with them. And then 50 days is how long between Passover and the day of the Feast of Pentecost. Now, uh, that's from the second day of Passover, so it would have been even less than 40 days. It was just slightly over a week that they had to wait, um, or I, I don't know, wait, but yeah, that they were not sure about how long it would be. And then the, on the day of Pentecost is when it occurred, when, when the Holy Ghost came to them with power and with a, an unmistakable event. Now in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the they asked Jesus, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So you can see they're still, they still have the idea. They think, okay, Jesus has been resurrected. Now he's going to do what we always thought he would do as the Messiah, which is lead us in battle or lead the Israel, the nation of Israel to be freed from its Roman oppressors. So they're asking him, are you going to do this now? They know that it's that it's coming at some point because the prophecies are unequivocal on that on that score. However, they don't know when. And Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. A very interesting answer because none of them would live to see it, obviously. But he gives them their life's mission. He, he tells them, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You'll, you're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. So you're going to start where I started, but then you are going to be the the means by which this word is going to be carried everywhere. And as Peter testifies later, it's from the Abrahamic covenant. In Abraham's seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. In other words, the Jews are going to spread the gospel to everyone. But not the gospel. In the Old Testament, the context of that promise was that they would spread Judaism. But now here the disciples are, they're spreading Christianity, which in not too many years would depart from Judaism appreciably to the point where Jews and Christians were called by two different names. Still at this time, 
Anyone who was a Christian would also consider himself a Jew, but it won't be too long before that's not true. Okay, so that that is Acts chapter 1, and then uh, after Jesus is done telling him these things, they walk out and Jesus rises into heaven. And uh, you may have seen, I had a, a painting of this in my missionary kit. You may have seen this painting where there's two angels standing by, pointing up into heaven, dressed in white, uh, well, as the disciples look up in wonder and amazement. That's one of my favorite paintings of the, Jesus doesn't appear in this painting, but it's a painting of, a, of subjects around Jesus. And uh, anyway, if you if you search for images on the Ascension, you may see that. I think it's by Harry Anderson, unless I'm mistaken. Um, so then they return to Jerusalem, and what do they? What is the first thing that the disciples do? Jesus leaves, and what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem, and they gather, and they do what? This is a very interesting point that I'm about to make. They fill the vacancy left by Judas. And this is significant because it is proof that there were meant to be 12 disciples. There were meant to be 12, excuse me, there were meant to be 12 apostles. And it wasn't just that Jesus happened to call 12 and then when they were gone, there would be a pope, right? Jesus didn't call a pope. He didn't call a pontiff. He didn't call a prelate. He didn't call any of the other titles that are taken by leaders of various religions, he called apostles. And the, the 11 apostles, after Jesus ascends into heaven, they realize they should be 12 in number. And they immediately set about setting that right. Now, they choose from the people who had been with Jesus the whole time because they still have those available. Later on, Paul becomes an apostle. And we know that Paul was not with Jesus during his lifetime. And so, therefore, that wasn't a hard requirement. It just so happened that uh, they had enough disciples available who had been with Jesus the whole time. And they they eventually narrow it down to two, and then they cast lots, which is kind of like picking the short straw. It's a way of introducing randomness into this equation. It's almost like flipping a coin. And it was generally considered in the... Jewish culture and Hebrew culture that casting lots allowed God to put his hand on earthly events. And when they cast the lots, the lot felt, fell upon Matthias. So there was Barsabbas and Matthias, and Matthias became the disciple. But the point is this. This is proof that there was some sort of falling away. There was an apostasy because the disciples intended for there to be 12 apostles. They always knew there had to be 12. That was their first order of business after Jesus left, and they kept it up for as long as they could. So when they could no longer keep 12 apostles alive and functioning and uh, in, a, in a working quorum, then that's when the church began to fall apart. And that's when so many other churches and that's when confusion began to spring up. So this is a, an important proof of the apostasy found right here in uh, Acts chapter 1. Now, Acts chapter 2 is the account of this glorious manifestation of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. So first of all, the Pentecost is a Greek way, mean, it means 50th. It's a Greek way of describing, that it was Hellenistic Jews, it was their name for the Feast of Weeks, also called Shavuot. So that's weeks, the festival or the Feast of Weeks. This, the biblical background of the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks is that it is when the harvest comes in for wheat. Now, all in between the time of Passover and Pentecost, that's 50 days or a week of weeks. It's called weeks because it is seven weeks and a day, right? So 50 days or 49 days plus one. And it was actually a a fairly established custom that that Jews would consider the 50th of anything to be very holy. So every seventh year was a Sabbath year, and every 50th year was a was a jubilee year. And the same thing with the day after the Pentecost. The four, the seven weeks, every every seventh day was a Sabbath day, but the 50th day was a double, it was like a double Sabbath. And all during that those weeks they were harvesting barley, but then the the harvest of wheat came in 
uh, around the time of Pentecost. So it was a way to give thanks to God for the, the biblical commandment is it's a way to give thanks to God for the harvest. However, it also aligns very closely with some events from the Exodus. So obviously Passover commemorates the, the time when the Jews were spared from one of the plagues of Egypt where the firstborn were killed. And then seven weeks later, uh, roughly about the time of the first Pentecost, the first Shavuot, is when they were at Sinai receiving the covenant of be, that, that would meld them together as a people. And this is significant in this context because uh, here is... If, if we remember what happened on Passover, Passover was Jesus instituting the sacrament. Um, Passover was Jesus performing the atonement. So in other words, amazing miracles occurring, the same way that it occurred, sparing Israel from the, the worst of what would come upon those around them if they would be obedient, right? Very, very in line with uh, the analogy between the Passover and the atonement. And then what happened 50 days later is that there would be a different kind of miracle, a manifestation of the power of God, which would meld the Israelites together forever as a people with a covenant. And the same thing ha is happening here. So seven weeks before, Jesus had done the spiritual work. He had saved them. And seven weeks after, here they are being melded together as a people and as a church that will move forward and, and spread and be a light unto the nations, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So that once again, Jesus has been held up by many of the, by more than one of the writers of the Gospels as the fulfillment of the, what, what's a better way to say it? He is the second Israel. He is like Israel, except he got it right. Where Israel got it wrong, they didn't listen to the prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that Israel failed to keep. And so there, uh, there are many parallels between the life of Jesus, the history of Israel. And here's another one. This is a continuation on that same theme, which is that here's Jesus creating a people the way that Moses created a people. Peter later on will actually make reference to the verse in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, when Moses says, another prophet shall arise like unto me, him you should listen to in everything that he says, right? He's, in other words, he's saying, I am a great prophet. I'm, I'm basically setting up the entire basis for all of the teachings, but there's going to be one more. And so you shouldn't consider the canon closed until he shows up. And uh, I'll, I'll make reference of that. That's in chapter that's here in chapter two so that's that's what they're all doing there in in uh in jerusalem so first of all it's the the time frame between the the passover and the giving of the law but it's also a time of thanksgiving for the first fruits of the harvest and that's symbolic as well because on this day it, what we're about to read three thousand souls joined themselves to this fledgling religion. Now, 3,000 people is enough to, uh, if you'll forgive the expression, really do some damage, right? It, it, is, it is quite a dent out of the, the work they have to do. It is, it is a lot of progress, especially to make in one day. So it's quite significant. And so these are the first fruits of their harvest. And it's very appropriate that that would occur during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what happens? The first thing that Peter is teaching, and it's not clear from chapter 2 exactly what they're talking about before the spiritual manifestation occurs, but all of a sudden there's a mighty wind, there's this rushing sound, and then everyone can understand. There, there are people from all over the Jewish world, right? All over the Near East have come to Jerusalem, and they speak all kinds of different languages, and they hear there's no more need for translation. They all hear what is being taught in their own tongues. And some people scoff at it and say, oh, they're, they're drunk, right? And Peter's like, how do you explain what's going on by talking about being drunk? That doesn't explain what's happening. You're hearing this in your language. This is the Holy Ghost. And then he, then he takes 
what um, this advantage of being able to preach to everyone simultaneously. And he begins to talk about, um, he, first of all, he points to a prophecy in Joel who says that your, old, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And so, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. The, this, so this is a manifestation of what we would call to, in the church today the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues, the purpose of it, is so that people can hear the word of God in their own language. And now if you think about it, the most common manifestation of the gift of tongues is the missionaries that we send out all over the world being able to, being facilitated in their work to learn a foreign language. And it ha- but it has the same purpose as this more dramatic manifestation here in the book of Acts, which is that people would hear the gospel preached to them in their own language. And Joseph Smith actually condemned the, the false gift of tongues when um, someone babbles a lot of incoherent nonsense. And he said that, you know, this may come from a spirit, but it's not the spirit of God. When the spirit of God gives the gift of tongues, there should be someone there who can interpret what is being said. It is, it is definitely going to be for the purpose of imparting wisdom about God. And so here we are uh, seeing this marvelous manifestation of the gift of tongues. Then what does is, what is, uh, Peter talk about? In verse 23, Peter says, he's talking about Jesus. He says, "...him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken." and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So Peter is basically telling these people, you were party to the death of the Messiah and the Son of God. And this, this is the message, right? This is not, um, these are not pleasant words that he's telling them. He's, he's talking about the glory of Jesus, all the miracles that he did, and then he says, so he's obviously talking about the, to the Jews of Jerusalem, and by extension, he's talking to any Jews that may happen to be present, right? He's, he's including them all. He's saying, you as a culture, you as a people, even if you weren't present on that day, you have been part of the system that put Jesus to death. And you've been part of the system that departed from the ways of God. So how would you like to uh, get back to what God wants? You can feel that God is with us right now. This is all, everyone here is receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost spontaneously. It would, it would appear, right? Without the laying on of hands. But perhaps, perhaps that's just my reading. Um, and, then, and then he talks about how Jesus was killed by them. And they're pricked in their hearts. Meaning, not only do they feel that God is present, but they also feel moved that they have to make a change in their lives. Uh, one of the scriptures that, that Peter, well, actually two of the scriptures that Peter uses to, to prove that Jesus needed to die, uh, and this was part of the special episode we did this week, but I'll make brief mention again. One was Psalms 16, the 16th Psalm, verse 8. Thou shalt not suffer, this is when David says, Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, and thou, thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And Peter spends several verses reasoning from that psalm, showing how it proves that, uh, that God would actually be killed because he's saying, well, David didn't have the option to not see corruption. He's still in his tomb. He was talking about Christ, right? So he, he actually reasons from this. And then he talks about the pride of David, the, the righteous pride in his God, when in Psalm 110, verse 1, when he says, The Lord said unto my Lord, I will make thy enemies thy footstool. In other words, he's going to be killed. He shows from the book of Psalms in two cases right here in this little talk. In other words, he's tailoring the message to his audience, right? He's from the book of Psalms, he says both that Christ would be killed and that he would be resurrected. And then this is when he goes to that, that famous verse in Deuteronomy 18:15 and says, There's he was the other prophet who's like Moses. So they say, what shall we do? We, we have this amazing feeling like, I feel like I should make a change. What should I do? And Peter says, you all need to be baptized. He remembers this, this innovation almost of John the Baptist where he told people to bring forth fruits meet for repentance. And the Holy Ghost, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time 
talking, or at least we don't have it in the Gospels, that he spent a lot of time talking about baptism. He did say baptize people, but now uh, Peter is making it obvious that this was the gospel of Jesus all along, that it's really important. And so he says the first thing you need to do is to be baptized. And 3,000 people were joined to their group. Now it says at the end of this chapter, it's, it's very amazing because these are people from all walks of life, and all of a sudden here they are sharing everything. They have all things in common. And that's quite amazing, right? I mean, to get 3,000 people in one day, this number, the number of converts is now almost certainly greater than the number of existing members of the church. So most of the people, in fact, they, the, the followers of Jesus from before his death might be greatly outnumbered by people who join on this one day. And yet they're all willing after one day, after one amazing experience to share everything they have. It says that they sold their homes, they, they deposited everything uh, with, the, with the apostles. As we'll learn later, this isn't a commandment that Peter made. Uh, Jesus didn't make this commandment either. He didn't say you have to have all things in common. But this seems to be a pattern that follows people who are at the highest level of following Jesus. We see it in the, the book of Moses, the city of Enoch, they did this. When they reached the highest level of following Jesus, then there was no poor among them. They had all things in common. We see it again in 4th Nephi, and we see it here in the book of Acts. And uh, we'll find out how I know that it wasn't a commandment in just a few, uh, in just a few minutes. But So they are sharing all things in common, and they're to the point where even these foreigners, some, one of them from Cyprus, he has to go home, sell his home, and bring the money and give it to the give it to the apostles. And it's not precisely clear. Did they all intend to? Did they intend to do this temporarily? Were they going to? Um, because once you sell your your home and your lands, like perhaps that's where your income was coming from, right? What what do you you have to work eventually? Like the money will run out eventually. So did they intend this to feed the poor in the short term? Also, um, as they did this, they must have known that they were doing precisely what Jesus did while he was alive, right? Jesus, as we know from um, when he. Complain, when Judas complained about the, the costly ointment that was spread over Jesus before his betrayal, uh, Judas complained, oh, that money should have been given to the poor. The reason he said that is because he knew that Jesus would be willing to give money to the poor. He wanted to keep the money, and if Judas claimed that it was for the poor, then G Jesus might be more likely to do it. Because, and, and so, by implication, we can know that Jesus was constantly giving what money he had to the poor. And he also commanded his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. This is the way that ever, other people are going to know that you're, that you're from me is when they see you loving each other the way I loved you. And here they are doing just that. So this is a, this is a continuation of that that scripture in John when John is telling his disciples, love one another the way I loved you. And here they are fulfilling that commandment and that directive. The end of chapter two, they have all things in common. Now chapter three is this marvelous miracle. And uh, there's a gate of the temple called the beautiful gate. And there's a man there who's been lame, it says from uh, chapter three, verse two, from his mother's womb. So he's never been able to walk properly and he's never developed. Uh, you can imagine that this would, that they didn't have the kind of therapy that we have today, obviously. So now if somebody is handicapped or injured to the point, a spinal injury, uh, doctors and therapists will often exercise those limbs to keep them and stretch them to keep them from atrophying, uh, especially if there's the hope of recovery. And you can imagine that this man's legs were completely atrophied. So what would formerly be called a withered leg, like just absolutely almost not even there, just a little curled up leg under this man. And Peter and John come, and this man's, uh, and Peter seems drawn to the man, right? This man doesn't say to Peter and John, hey, will you please heal me? He just is asking alms, and Peter sees the man, and 
it even says in verse 4, he fastened his eyes upon him. And so the Spirit is telling Peter, obviously, this person has the faith to be healed. And so then he says, hey, look at us. And the man looks up and he says, I don't have any money to give you, but what I have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man rises up immediately. So this is not just a miracle of healing. Um, This is a miracle every bit as amazing as the miracle of healing the man blind from birth. If you remember, we talked at the time that it's not just the eye that needed to be healed. There are nerves which were dead for sure. There were parts of the brain which had never been developed because the man had not been used to seeing. He didn't have the visual cortex He didn't have the thought patterns. He didn't have the synapses to be able to process visual information. And when Jesus healed a man blind from birth, all of these things became rectified in an instant. So here's this man whose legs have obviously been atrophied or never developed. And he leaps up and he's running around the Temple Mount. I mean, he's celebrating. He's just joyous. And everyone sees it and they all know him because, as it says later, he's 40 He's over 40 years old. We'll talk about what that means, too. And so here's a notable miracle, right? It is something that nobody can deny. And um, and so he's, he's praising God. He's giving thanks, and everyone knows it. And then, and then Peter has another opportunity, right? Everyone gathers around, and the crowd starts to gather. People are running to get others to, hey, come see what just happened. Like, you remember Jesus of Nazareth? He used to do these things. Well, somebody else is doing them now. Come check it out. And they would all come and look. And they saw that here's this man. And, you know, if they hadn't recognized him personally, then at least they had eyewitnesses there that they could ask, hey, do you, you I mean, you've seen this guy, right? He's He's never walked? Nope. I've known him my whole life. He's never walked, right? And here he is walking. So there would have been plenty of witnesses there. And again, what is the message that Peter teaches? He teaches these people that they crucified Jesus. Isn't that an interesting message, right? They, uh, they, you, you have put to death your God. And this works. This message is, is resonating with the Jews. And he says, you can, he says, I know you didn't do it knowingly. Nevertheless, like this is a pretty big deal and you need to repent. And so they feel the spirit and many people are joining themselves. And he's also teaching them that because Jesus was resurrected, there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, uh, the, the Sadducees don't like this. Not only because they were the ones behind killing Jesus, but because they don't believe in resurrection of the dead at all. And so for somebody to be preaching that doctrine so brazenly, especially in the temple, uh, co-opting the space of the temple, right? The Sadducees kind of feel like this space belongs to them. And here are these disciples of a man they thought they got rid of, co-opting the space and preaching a doctrine that they hate. So the Sadducees arrest Peter and John, And they put them in prison overnight, and then they bring them into the trial the next day. And these are the same people that, this is exactly what, uh, I shouldn't say exactly, it wasn't a nighttime trial, and it probably wasn't in the same place. But it was similar to what Jesus went through. So here's Annas. We're in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 6. Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, as many that were kindred of the high priest. So... This is the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin. And they put Peter and John in the middle of them and they say, why do you think, you know, how did you do this? And they say, by what power or by what name? In other words, how did you do it? And why did you think it was okay to do it? That's the way I read this verse. And Peter then proceeds to preach the same message. Jesus is alive that you killed. Jesus wasn't just... Uh, a preacher. He wasn't just an amazing man. All of his miracles were real. We know from his miracles that he was approved of God, but he was more than a prophet. He was the Son of God and the Messiah, and you have killed him. Now, again, Peter uses the Psalms to testify of Jesus. Uh, And I think this is significant because we know from Luke 24, we know that the apostles got a scriptural message from Jesus. He taught them hey, you haven't been reading the scriptures properly. 
here are the scriptures that prove that I was the Messiah, but also that I needed to suffer and die and be resurrected. And so we can get, as I mentioned in our special episode, we can get a lot of indications as to what those scriptures were by seeing what Peter and others talked about right afterward. And so this one is from Psalm 118. The stone the builder, he was the stone, Peter says, that the builders refused, who's become the chief cornerstone. So when you killed him, you are the builders, and you refused him as the chief cornerstone. And just as a, some indication, the, the, when he's talking about the cornerstone, they all knew what that meant. There's a, a huge wall on the southwest corner of the temple where um, the, the, the wall of the temple has been built up. So it's like a temple mount, but in order to make it level, there's this retaining wall slash uh, defense wall that surrounds that mount and raises up. So there's a, there's a very tall space on one side where the ground level is not equal to the ground level of the temple where they had to level it out. And all the way there at the bottom, the, the stones there at the very bottom are over 350 tons in weight. And the size of them is just phenomenal. So this is what he means. It's not just the cornerstone of a building, but it's the cornerstone that supports everything and it's visible to everyone. It's known. And this this stone cannot have flaws in it, right? The stone cannot have cracks. It cannot be marred, but it has to be brought whole. It has to be brought, this huge stone has to be brought without breaking it from the quarry. And so that was that is why a builder would refuse a stone, right? He might look at it and say, we can't put the stone at the base of a wall. It's got a crack in it. So they found a flaw in Jesus, and he's saying it's become the head of the corner and it's supporting everything. So this is a this is a vivid analogy to them, and it's right out of the book of Psalms. Nobody knows what it meant until here's Peter telling them, and obviously Jesus had told him. And they Peter has another powerful opportunity to bear testimony of Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And they say, look, we don't like this. We don't like the fact that... Uh, that you're talking in the name of somebody that we that is officially under condemnation, and we don't like you talking about the resurrection, so we want you to stop. And they say, well, look, we think it's the will of God that we're saying this, and so therefore, who are we going to listen? Who do you think we're going to listen to? Like, they don't even make a pretense that they're actually going to stop. They tell them right out, we're going to keep talking in the name of Jesus. And, uh, or as it says in verse... Uh, 19 and 20. Peter and John answered, said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And just like Jesus, these men immediately go back to the temple. So they don't just go keep preaching about Jesus and do it in secret and try to find, you know, converts on the sly. They go to the one place where it would annoy these men the most, where it would cause the most friction and the most political problem for them, which is right on the Temple Mount, and they're in the, da- they're in the temple daily preaching about Christ. Now, there's a verse in this chapter that gives us a very valuable insight into the mindset of the, the Jewish leaders, and it's verse 16. Um, they, they commanded the disciples to, or Peter and John, they put them apart, and they were conferring among themselves. And we must, we must have a record of this from uh, one of the followers of Jesus who was in the Sanhedrin, perhaps Nicodemus. Uh, but anyway, they say with, among themselves, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all, to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So they know <laughs> that a miracle has been done, and they can't, they, and they also admit that they can't deny it. And nobody says, you know what, maybe we should listen to them. How, how are they doing these miracles? Why can't we do miracles? What do they have that we don't? Maybe we should humble ourselves a little bit here. Doesn't even enter into their conversation. So, uh, and then it's reinforced. So Peter and John, they they uh, set them free and they go right back into, and they start praying and they go home and they tell everyone what happened. And then that everyone takes this as a fulfillment of one of the, uh, Everyone takes this as a fulfillment of one of the other psalms that seems to be speaking about Jesus. They're, they quote Psalm 2, where it says, 
why does why do the the heathen why did the nation so furiously raise raise together why do the heathens imagine a vain thing the kings of the earth rise up rise up against the lord and against his anointed and then they say obviously the leaders of the jews and pilate they rose up against christ and so they're pointing out that jesus is a fulfillment of psalm 2 so there are four psalms 16 110 118 and psalm 2 all right right there close together in the book of acts um so it's obvious that G- that the Psalms were really important to Jesus. That Jesus knew that that David had and others had written very accurately about his day. I think it's kind of fascinating. But in any case, Peter and John return home and they start telling everybody what happens. And there's another outpouring of the Spirit. This time, it's just confined to those people who are already listening to them. You know, they must have had some sort of gathering place, maybe on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And as, he, as Peter and John are telling the story and rejoicing that they've been persecuting in the cause of Christ, because Christ had said that would be a, an indication that you were blessed, then the Spirit pours out on them and then it's reemphasized how many things they had in common and how willing they were to sacrifice each, for each other. And uh, so that leads right directly into chapter 5. And now we have a, an interesting contrast, right? So... Um, here is the story. Now, this, this seems to be a very cruel story, but I want to I explain what's going on here. There's an, uh, everyone has everything in common except Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. They sold their land, but they kept back part of the price of it. So people would sell what they owned, and they would bring it, put it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute it, and everybody would have all things in common. But what they did was... They represented that they had done this, and they kept some money aside. And Peter must have had some sort of discernment, similar to what Alma the Younger had when he was speaking to Zeezrom. He he could see what was in Zeezrom's mind to get him to renounce his faith, but then not give him the money. Uh, Peter seems to have um, discerned that Ananias had been lying, and he puts it in an interesting way. He doesn't say, why are you lying to me? In verse 3 of chapter 5 of Acts, Peter says, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of land? Now, here's how we know that this was a voluntary thing. Peter says, while it remained, was it not thine own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? In other words, before you sold it, it was yours. Nobody made you do it. After you sold it, you had all the money. Nobody made you give it up. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Now, this, this is the part that some people have a problem with, that, that the disciples, or that it was... Um, it seems almost to be like the disciples cared about the money, the apostles cared about the money, and he's commanding him to die, or or that God cares so much about money that this man had to die because he didn't give up his money. So uh, let's look at it a little differently here. First of all, Peter didn't command anything to happen. This wasn't a miracle of Peter, if it was miracle at all, right? Remember, God has in his hands when we all live and die. And people die for reasons that are just or unjust. And seen from an earthly perspective, uh, it all seems cruel sometimes. It hardly ever seems like um, we really wish somebody would die, right? We always wish they had some more time. And the, the point is, Ananias had just received quite a shock. And Peter did this publicly and I, I think it's because Ananias had been trying to get the glory of giving up his possessions to God publicly. Otherwise, I think Peter probably would have handled, handled this privately. But because Ananias had publicly lied, Peter publicly exposed it. And the shock, perhaps the shame, the humiliation was so great that he, Ananias was overcome. I don't think this would be a very notable event had this had the story ended there. But Ananias and his wife Sapphira had colluded to do this together. So when she came back 
Some time later, Peter asked her, he wanted to know, did, were you aware of this? So he asked her, did you sell your house for the price? Like, was this the price? And she says, oh yeah, that was the price. And he says, well, I know it wasn't the price. And your husband died when I, when I confronted him about it. And, I think, and, and, and he makes some indication that he thinks she will too. And she does, right? She falls down dead as well. So the fact that they both fall down dead is why we even have heard this story. Otherwise, it's just somebody being confronted and, and, uh, and falling down dead. If you remember, this happened to Eli as well, the prophet or the, the high priest who taught Samuel. He, he hears that his sons have, been, uh, have both been killed on the same day and he falls over dead, right? So this has happened before in the scriptures. So they both fall over dead on the same day when, when they hear the same fact, when they're confronted with the same wickedness. Now, this isn't about two people being killed because they wouldn't give their money to God, right? Or give their money to the apostles. What is it about? Okay, this is is my interpretation. But just two chapters ago, chapter 3, we have this lame man sitting outside the temple. And it makes Luke take special care to note that the gate he's sitting outside of is the gate that's called Beautiful. The word for beautiful in Hebrew, in case you've been reading ahead, is sephira. Now, when you know that, then you start to look at this and you think, okay, Luke is drawing a contrast here. On the one hand, there's somebody who wasn't looking to receive anything, and yet God gave him everything. He was able to restore that which he never had. This, this man is sitting outside the gate called Beautiful. Peter heals his legs, and he, he leaps and runs throughout the temple glorifying and praising God. And here's this woman who's called Beautiful, and she is willing to withhold her, substan- her substance from God and then lie to God about it. So Luke is drawing this powerful contrast. Now, uh, incidentally, Ananias means Jehovah is gracious or generous. And, and so uh, his... The names here, I think, are significant. I think the reason that Luke includes this story in his book of Acts and in his account of the disciples is to is to contrast this event with the man healed outside of the temple and show that God is, in fact, gracious. It's men that aren't gracious, right? It's God that's beautiful. It's men that are not beautiful. When, when they choose to choose the things of this world, and, the, and hiding their sins and lying over the things of God. So a powerful contrast here. That's why this story is here. It's not because uh, Peter cared so much about the money that these two people had to die. He cared about the way that this, that this couple was representing themselves, that they were trying to be part of something greater than themselves, and yet withholding. The, he, they, did, they had basically the same sin that Cain had, which was that they were begrudging in their gift towards God. Right? That, that was Cain's original sin, if you remember. And so it was very serious. And uh, so then the, the chapter continues. That's the beginning of chapter 5. But then chapter 5 continues with the, the word spreading about this amazing healing miracle to the point where people are coming from all around Jerusalem. And they are thronging Peter and John the way that they used to throng Jesus in Galilee, except now it's happening in Jerusalem. Like if the word has finally got, gotten out, there's healing to be had here. To the point where before people would try to touch just the hem of Jesus' garment, now they're laying their sick along the side of the street in the hopes that Peter walking by, his shadow would over would overfall them, would overshadow them, and then they would because the shadow of Peter had touched them, then they would be healed. Now, the, the scripture doesn't explicitly say that that healed them, but, the, but that the people hoped that it would. And it does say that as many as came were healed. So this may have been in a case of Peter just walking by somebody and his shadow falling on them, healing them. In any case, it seems clear that the disciples were as prolific in their healing as Jesus was. So the, the contra- there's another contrast here, and that is the kind of people the disciples were before Jesus died and the kind of people they are now. Peter, we, we did not get the impression from Peter 
that he was an extremely strong leader. He was impetuous. You know, he was the one who was courageous enough, I, I say, from my own perspective, to, to jump out of the boat and join Jesus walking on the water. He loved Jesus so much that he couldn't be separated from him. That's the way I read that scripture. Couldn't be separated from him any longer. He thought, you know, if that's you, then tell me to come out there with you and I'll join you. So, and Peter said to Jesus, you know, how many times do I have to forgive people? So Peter humbled himself before Jesus and he loved Jesus. And yet, right, yet, where were the disciples when Jesus was arrested? They scattered to the four winds. Peter denied Christ, right? We did not get the impression as we're reading about the life of Jesus while Jesus is around. In fact, that it may even be true that they leaned on Jesus a little too much because as soon as he's gone, they all just don't know what to do. And yet, here they are. The, the, the day of Pentecost comes and then Peter is bold enough Right to start telling Jews everywhere he goes, you're the ones who killed your own God. And then he does it in such a way that obviously the words are put in his mouth by God and they, they listen and they're converted. Or he says it in front of the Sanhedrin and they hear it and they're offended. But Peter doesn't care either way. He's willing to say the words of God no matter how difficult it might be. So there has been a total transformation in the mindset and in the attitude and in the, the courage and in the power of the apostles. And it, and it happens, it's basically this journey that Israel went through from Egypt to Sinai, right? This, this symbolic journey from Passover to Shavuot, from Passover to Pentecost, the, the journey that Israel went through was from being saved from a, a sudden death, you know, a, a, you might think of um, a spiritual death being the, the symbol here. But they've been saved from death, you know, they've been rescued, helpless, and then they're miraculously brought out and, and then molded together as a people, and, and a nation is created, and they're given an identity and a purpose, and they're given tremendous promises. And that's the same journey that the disciples of Christ have, have walked from the time that Jesus partook of the bread and wine with them and the day of Pentecost when they were, all, when they were able to preach to every man in his own tongue. From that time forward, Peter was a changed man. Everyone, was a, all the apostles by extension, we can assume, were changed men. They were all able to administer the economic affairs of thousands of people and they were able to confront the Jews with their sins and uh, their hypocrisy in the way that they had rejected their own Messiah. So that's the journey here. That, that, that is the message of these first five chapters of Acts, is that from, Pen from Passover to Pentecost, Christ has created a people from from. From Egypt to Sinai, uh, Moses created a people. And similarly, Christ created a people. These are the people that are going to be responsible for carrying his message throughout the world. Now to finish up, we're going to go back to chapter 4 and read the end of that. There's a, there's a very fascinating passage. So um, the second time that the disciples are arrested, right, once they start healing everyone, they're brought before the Sanhedrin again, and they're like, hey, look, guys, I thought I told you, we thought we told you, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they put him in, or actually they arrest him, put him in jail, but this time an angel lets him out of jail. This happens again later, by the way, more than once. Um, but they put him in jail, and overnight they're just released by the angel. Nobody knows how. The, the jail is still locked up. And what do they do? They go straight to the temple the very thing that they've been arrested for doing, they go straight back to the temple and start preaching. So the, the Sanhedrin gathers for the trial, goes to get the men in the prison, can't find them. And they're like, whoa, the jail's still locked. How did they get out? And then somebody runs in breathless and says, you know, well, they're back in the temple doing it again. So they bring him in and they bring him in very carefully, right? Without any violence because everyone loves them so much. 
And they're telling him, look, we don't like your message. We don't like that you're teaching about the resurrection, and we don't like that you're talking about Jesus. And Peter and John have the same response. Uh, We don't care what you like. We're going to keep talking about Jesus because it's God's will. And then an interesting thing happens. It's so fascinating, and we'll end our lesson here. A man named Gamaliel, he uh, will, and we'll we'll hear more about him. He's not, he doesn't figure directly in the story, but indirectly later. Uh, a man named Gamaliel stands up and says, look, they put, once again, they put the disciples aside, apart, so they can talk privately. And, they, and he says, look, refrain from these men. Let's not mistreat them. In other words, let's not do to them what we did to Jesus. We don't have to kill them. We don't have to imprison them. There was, do you remember, there was a guy not too long ago, and he claimed to be a prophet. And when he died, he had 500 followers or so, and they they just disintegrated, right? And then there was another guy named Judas, and he had a movement. And when he died, his movement fell apart. So Jesus is dead. If this is not of God, this movement will fall apart. Just don't, you don't have to do anything for it to fall apart. And here's the notable part. He says, if it is of God, you shouldn't resist them. So because then you'd be resisting God and you wouldn't be able to prevail and you'd be on the wrong side of this. And they accept what he says and they actually beat Peter and John, but then they let them go. And they tell him again, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John are like, "Uh, okay, uh, if you don't want us to do that, you shouldn't let us go because that's exactly what we're going to go do. But it's the the idea that I want to get across at the end of our lesson is this if. He says, if it's of God, you cannot prevail against it. And they they don't quarrel with that if. They don't say, well, we know it's not of God, right? They agree. They agree to the premise of what Gamaliel is saying when he says, if it's of God, you can't prevail. The premise is they don't actually know. So what do we know? about what these men were willing to do in the absence of information. Not knowing whether Jesus was from God or not, they were willing to kill him. This is the, this is the important fact of this event. They were willing to kill Jesus, and, ne- and now when somebody says, well, if this is of God, and they say, yeah, you're right, you know, if it's of God, they've already been willing to commit murder, and they don't know but from someone saying, claiming to be the Son of God, and they don't know that he was lying. So they, they condemned him to death, and they didn't know that it was actually blasphemy. This is, this is unavoidable. This is an unavoidable conclusion from what's going on here. The fact that they're willing to accept this if is, shows that it's unavoidable, that they, they did not know for sure that Jesus was committing blasphemy because... He could have been the Son of God. And that's clear here. Why why am I making a special point of this? There are plenty of ifs in our lives where God is concerned. They come up all the time. There's no end of questions we could ask ourselves about what is God's will for me today? What is God's will in this situation? Why am I going through that hard thing? Why Why was that person... Uh, able to get away with what they did to me, and I'm not able to have anything go right in my life, you know, in return or etc. Right? The, in other words, we live in a fallen world and things are not fair, and it doesn't feel sometimes like God is paying attention, or God hasn't answered my prayer about the Book of Mormon, or, um, you know, why did the, yeah, why did any number of things happen that? that it seems like God should have wanted it to happen some other way. And when that happens, there's an if. And I just want to point out, there's a, this is the final contrast, right? There's the contrast between the disciples of Jesus and the Sanhedrin. There's the contrast between the people who are listening to the apostles and the Sanhedrin. Some of them hear this message, the same message, you killed Jesus. You killed your own Messiah. You killed your own God. And now he's alive again. If you'll repent, he will forgive you. They have an if. Every one of them has an if. They don't have the same experience that the apostles had with the risen Lord. They have an if. If this is of God, then we should follow it. 
If this is of God, we can't resist it. But it's how they deal with that if that makes the difference. Do you see that even the Sanhedrin may have been willing to accept that Jesus was who he said he was? As James said, when he was talking about faith without works being dead, he said, you say that you know there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. In other words, it's what we do with that if. The devils might believe. The devils, according to James, might be willing to accept that God exists, but they don't let it change them. And the Sanhedrin, they might be willing to accept that there's a possibility that Jesus was who he said he was, but they don't let it change them. So this is, this is the lesson from Acts 1 through 5. This is, this is the point that Luke is getting across by all of these contrasts, which is there's this if, if this be of God, then let it change you. Let it enter into your heart. Let what's going on, let the spirit that you feel when you are worshiping together, when you hear the word of the Lord preached from one of his representatives, let it change you. For heaven's sake, don't resist it. Literally, for heaven's sake, don't resist the word of God when it comes to you, but take that if and turn it into something that would cause you to receive greater revelation and have all things in common and love one another and to hear the gospel preached in your language. and Or you can be on the out and, and have your legs, your, your very strength restored unto you, right? To be saved out of Egypt. Or you can uh, be confronted with your own duplicity and your own hypocrisy and you can either be conquered by the Romans and have your nation destroyed, or you can drop down dead when your sins are revealed. These are the contrasts, these, these people dealing with these ifs in two different ways. So I pray that we will pay attention to this very important message, which is there's an if in every life. There's an if every day. If this is of God, then let us not resist it. That we will see God's hand in all things, And we would be willing to have faith that Jesus was sent to save us and to strengthen us. And he really does love us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 